0: Hello, and welcome to Stomp, Death and Taxes. This is me, or Mary Pat Campbell, as I'm better known professionally. I'm a life actuary, which means I know something, little something, about life annuity insurance companies and how they fail. That's one of the things that I specialize in. A lot of people have been talking about, <coughs> excuse me, I'm getting over a cold, as you may hear, uh, bank failures lately. Went with uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and some other banks that have been <laughs> a little under the weather themselves. Okay, I'm not going to be flip about the bank situation right now. I am not a banking expert or banking failure expert, but I do know a little bit of how insurers go insolvent or how life annuity insurers go insolvent. So we want to talk about that today. Now, I'm not going to talk about anything going on currently with life insurers per se, just a little bit, um, but not a lot because that's my day job and they pay me for that. Um, I'm going to be talking more historically. So I'm going to do a little lesson on how life insurance companies are regulated in the United States and internationally. So I'm going to start out with a paper I wrote way back in 2012 called A Tale of Two Formulas, Solvency 2, SCR, and RBC. And this is one of the problems, of course, once you start getting into any particular niche in financial anything, you get all these TLAs. That's the three-letter acronyms. And not only three-letter acronyms, you get your four-letter acronyms, like the NAAC, which is the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, which is one of the organizations that is used to coordinate between the real regulators of insurers in the United States. One of the things that a lot of people do not know about insurance regulation in the United States is that it's done on a state level, not a federal level. Now, to be sure, the SEC does have some, you know, bit of regulation with regards to securities And, you know, insurers do get involved with securities type of stuff, but the core regulation is done by insurance commissioners at state departments of insurance, and all of the law is at the state level. Now, these state insurance commissioners, some of them are appointed by governors uh, and confirmed at you know, state legislatures, some of them, some of them are elected directly. Uh, it differs state to state. Now, why it's regulated at the state level, unlike so banks, if you think about banks, banks can have state level charters and they can have federal charters. We don't have anything like that in the United States currently. And every so often, it breaks out, oh, we should have federal regulation of insurers. And we don't. Um, it's a historical artifact. It goes back to the 19th century, believe it or not. And the reason it it is uh, regulated at the state level is really because of history, and it just continues on. And I could, you know, get into the ins and out of that history. But Basically, the reason it continues this way is it works, and also there's quite a bit of power in being an insurance commissioner, and the state insurance commissioners have banded together in the NEAC, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners, to, you know, commingle resources because some states, of course, have more resources than others. California, New York, uh, Florida, Texas, you know, those are much bigger states. They have much more resourced and state, state departments of insurance and they can help bolster the resources of other states. And they do get together to agree on certain measures such as RBC, which is risk based capital and RBC. Is a measure that the NEC came up with in the 1990s, after a spate of insurer insolvencies. And what does that mean in the insurance space? An insurance an insurer insolvency means that there's not enough assets, there's not enough money to pay for the promises an insurer has made. And what is the nature? So this is the distinction between banks and insurers. Now, I'm very familiar with the kinds of promises life annuity insurers make, which are very long-term promises and they're contingent promises. Uh, Property and casualty insurers are, you know, the nature of theirs can be more short-term, but they're also more volatile in some ways. It depends on the nature of the uh, property casualty insurance, of course. But let's just consider life annuity or life insurance. Life insurance is simple. Uh, (laughs) Well, it can be. So let's think in terms of life insurance. What does it mean for a life insurer to go insolvent? It means there's not enough assets in the life insurer to pay the promises it's made. And what are the promises? The promises generally are, and we'll just talk about life insurance, is that when you die, we are going to give you a certain agreed upon amount of money by your policy to your beneficiaries. Okay, now we don't know when you're going to die, and I'm not going to crack any jokes about this. We don't know when you're going to die. We have an idea of distribution and it's, you know, a diversifiable risk and yada, yada. So we've got, okay, we've got an idea of how much money we need to have on hand right now to cover the deaths that we're expecting then we have risk-based capital on top of that to cover contingencies such as, hey, a pandemic occurring and covering those death benefits. Okay, so those are the kinds of uh, promises that insurers have made. And what might cause them to be unable to cover the promises that they've made? Well, And this is how life insurers generally go insolvent. It's actually generally not something like pandemics. They have generally been able to estimate, you know, okay, here's, and and again, the COVID, people are like, well, COVID, now they've had enough capital to cover COVID deaths. That's generally not the issue of how. Uh, life insurers, annuity insurers go insolvent, it tends to be financial type promises, not mortality risk that stresses out um, life insurers. And so what has generally caused life insurers or life annuity insurers to go insolvent can be either that the assets lose value So that you're not able to cover, you don't have enough value of your assets to cover the promises. So an example here can be the Executive Life, that's an insurance company, that had a large portfolio of junk bonds. Now, uh, junk bonds, yeah, that's kind of a a derogatory term for what's also called high-yield bonds or below-investment-grade bonds. Um, have a lot of credit risk. Credit risk just means that it's a high probability of default. That means they're not going to fulfill their promises. Um, this is for fixed income securities where you are lending or you're expecting a certain amount of money to be paid by a counterparty and the counterparty does not pay it. So a bond, a loan, a swap, you have credit risk in that they do do not fulfill that promise. That's credit risk uh, versus interest rate risk, which is another aspect of how your assets, your fixed income assets can lose value. And that's one of the stresses that we've had on insurance companies lately is that interest rates go up. Fixed income assets you already have on the books, their value goes down when interest rates go up. And we've seen this in history before. There was a rise of rapid rise in interest rates at the end of the 1970s and the early 1980s. And this had stresses on the life insurers because it's not only a matter of drop in value in assets in terms of market value. There's also an asset liability mismatch. And that's another kind Of stress, we have something called disintermediation risk. And I'm going to describe this because this did happen to life insurers in the early 1980s. And regulators developed some tests to make sure life insurers had enough money on hand to cover the promises they made to life insurance policyholders. For permanent life insurance, so think of a whole life insurance policy or universal life insurance policy. Often there is an option called a policy loan that you could borrow against the cash value accrued in your life insurance policy. Okay, it's an asset to the policyholder. And these policies back then would have an interest rate cap. And I'm just going to make up numbers. I'm not going to give you realistic numbers. And maybe they are realistic numbers. Let's not worry about it. I'm just going to give you nice round numbers. And let's say the cap on what you could borrow was 10%. So you borrow against the policy and they would not charge you more than a 10% annualized interest rate. Okay, 10%. However, this was a very high interest rate environment, and say you could get 15% on a certificate of deposit, that's a CD, at a bank at the same time. That means you had an arbitrage opportunity, a real arbitrage. And so any smart policyholder would max out how much they could borrow from their policy, At 10%, take all that cash out and then put it in a CD at 15% and you get a guaranteed spread of 5%. That's great. You've got a guaranteed return of 5% there. Once you do that, now, of course, that would stress what's going on with um, the life insurers. So as a result, and this is called (laughs) This is called disintermediation risk or disintermediation, because what happens then is that um, the insurers would might have to cash out some of their assets that at a higher interest rate environment and therefore take a loss on a realized capital loss On those assets. Now, if you're not used to all of this and you know, your head is aching, you know, I just letting you know people take classes in this, have to take exams on these, this for actuarial exams and have to get this straight. I have this all straight in my mind because I've been looking at this stuff for years. So it's like second nature to me about what stresses what and all of these things interacting. And there's a whole history of this. Of course, back when this occurred, I was in kindergarten at the time. I just know this, of course, by reading papers, but also talking to actuaries who are probably retired now, but who had been working at the time and told me about the challenges they had of managing through that period of high interest rates because that's not what I was seeing. I was dealing with a situation of very low interest rates. So, you know, this is the kinds of things that regulators are concerned about. And actually, as a result of that period because the insurers had these products that had these guarantees <laughs> that hurt the insurer, um, the regulators came up with what's called cash flow testing. This is an RBC. This is to make sure the assets can produce cash flows to support the promises made, the liabilities. Okay? Okay. So this is cash flow testing for life insurers. Uh, There's something called the New York 7, which were seven economic scenarios in terms of what interest rates did and equity markets did to support what was going on with your portfolio. And this was in the 1980s. They did this, and it was only seven because, of course, the computing power was a lot less than what is considered reasonable now of course, is a lot more scenarios, especially as the products have become more complex. Well, cash flow testing is not the only solvency type testing for life annuity companies. There's something called reserves that are required. That is a value for the liabilities. So that's a kind of value of the promises that have been made. At a present value. So how much money do you have to hold right now to cover those promises? And you know, there's usually a little bit of conservatism in that promise. Um, So that's reserves and there's statutory reserves. So that's by statute, and that's by state law. And that can differ a little state by state, though most states will, again, through the NAAC, use similar approaches for determining reserves for life insurance and annuities. But then there's the extra. So the reserves are kind of the expected value on average, what do we expect to hold plus a little bit of a margin for safety? Then we have the required regulatory capital. And that's where my article on Solvency 2 SCR and RBC come in. So uh before RBC, so that's risk-based capital for NEC, the way states... Tried to determine whether or not an insurance company was insolvent because reserves is not enough. We know that there can be some adverse years just because of probability and volatility. Um, You need a little extra on top of reserves. So regulators had a variety of ratios that they looked at of assets to liabilities and some other ratios. And they figured, ah, you know, if you were within a certain amount, like you had a certain percentage of assets above the required reserves, you had enough of a margin of safety. Well, there were some notable insolvencies. I mentioned executive life with their junk bonds, and they realized that not all ratios were created equal. They needed to have a way to scientifically, to kind of figure out, is there a better way to figure out who is thinly capitalized? Who needs more capital for the risks that they're running, both in their assets and liabilities? You know, if you have a pretty conservative portfolio of assets – and of liabilities, then you don't have to hold as much capital. But if you have really risky assets and really risky liabilities, then you need to hold a lot more risk capital to cover those risk contingencies. And that's the concept behind RBC. That's risk-based capital. And they, you know, took some modeling approaches in the 1990s after these various insolvencies. Um, and again, it was, On the life insurer side, some of the most notable insolvencies were due to riskiness in the assets. That was one of the big ones. And then the other big one that caused insolvency was a mismatch between assets and liabilities, in particular, duration or aspects of that. So there was some notable one. There's something called GICS, uh, Guaranteed Investment Contracts. And these tend to be longer term. These tend to be like five years. So five years is a pretty common um, duration or maturity for a GIC, Uh, an institutional contract. Institutional investors would get a GIC. It's like a group annuity contract um, where you're guaranteed a certain return over a certain period it's supposed to be a liquid, meaning the group annuity contract holder cannot pull the money out. If they cannot pull the money out in that five year period, that means the insurer that's making this 5% promise or whatever the, you know, guaranteed interest rate promise is can then invest in illiquid assets and perhaps get a better return on those assets. Well, a couple of insurance companies did do something like this. However, they also put an extra guarantee in their GICs saying that the GIC holders could pull the money out before the maturity date under certain circumstances. It turned out that those circumstances also would mean it would make the insurer more likely to, you know, go insolvent. Um, I'm really, really simplifying the situation here, but basically they would invest in long, and we call it long. See, let's, I'm, I'm exaggerating here, like say a 10 year bond with a very, you know, much higher yield and then guarantee, say, that high yield for a five year contract. But they had, okay, you have a seven day. (laughs) But you can say, I want my money back and just give us seven days warning, which means we have to figure out how to get the cash in seven days and get it back to you, which means we may have to sell our assets well below what we think they're worth or because of bad, uh, I shouldn't say bad, but adverse interest rate movements. Uh, we will have to take a capital loss on those assets. So, um, you know, these are the kinds of things that happen. And what happens is the regulators take the insurers over when they don't have enough assets to cover their promises. Um, and they have what are called guarantee funds, just like FDIC has, you know, they will take money from other banks essentially to shore up depositor funds to make depositors, whole up to a certain amount. These guarantee funds are also supposed to make policyholders whole up to certain amounts. Um, That does get complicated. I will link to some items on those guarantee funds. And it's the the other insurers operating in that state that will contribute to the guarantee funds that will help, you know, um, that will help Rescue the insolvent insurer. But the thing is, of course, these insurers are rescued and the way life insurers go insolvent, and this is a little different from property and casualty insurers, the way life insurers go insolvent, they usually have a lot of assets when they go insolvent. So it doesn't necessarily take a lot of additional assets to make it, you know, attractive for another insurer to buy them. Um, so the guarantee funds, it's not like we've had a very, very large insolvency with life insurers in a very long time. Um, definitely not since RBC came into effect. Now, um, I do want to quote from my own paper since I wrote it. And yeah, it's 11 years ago and changes have occurred on RBC since I wrote this, but not really huge ones. And same for Solvency 2. Um, so Solvency 2 was an update to the European approach to, uh, regulation, but it's in effect and they've made changes since it was implemented, but it's still, they have a core, both of them have a core philosophy and those core philosophies have not changed. So with solvency two, so solvency two is the European Union uh, version of uh, regulation for insurance and insurance regulation in the EU is done at a national level. So there's a top down vision of the solvency two, then SCR, which is similar to RBC. So SCR is the solvency capital requirement. It's defined as the one-year value at risk, or VAR, at the 99.5% confidence level. This is for the entire insurer entity. One starts at this high-level concept and then drills down to modules and sub-modules of risk that conform to this vision. One could have a full internal model to simulate the losses to get a multivariate VAR, but in general, one would have separate individual Uh, models that have their results aggregated as noted in the formula above. And so I have a formula in the paper, which you can follow my link if you really care to see what it looks like. So on the other hand, United States RBC, that's risk-based capital, is more of a bottom-up calculation in its core concept. There is no specific time horizon or risk metric that is specified, much less a specified confidence level. As the RBC formula has been updated, it has been, at the component level, with various pieces having their own calibration points, not necessarily in conjunction with any other factors seen in the equation. The method for updating RBC has been one of incrementalism, with new factors being targeted to very specific risks and or lines of business. The projects have involved targeting missing risks or outdated factors. And I'll stop there. I've been involved in some of those projects over the years. There really is no calibration point, and it gets very political in arguing where these should be. And it makes it very easy to move where the factors should be, given we don't have any specific, well, it's 95 percentile. or No, it's not. It's not any particular percentile. You're always ending up comparing it against where you were before. Uh, and the point of uh, U.S. RBC, and this is what they've always said, is to find the marginal companies. It's not to rank order who's the strongest and who's middling strong, is to find the weak companies and to step in before they completely collapse. And also to give a little bit of guidance to keep um, insurers, you know, away from the guardrail so they can see, okay, we're getting up to riding the line. And most insurers are nowhere near the level of action level or action control level, ACL, we call it. Yes. And it, we have a lot of TLAs or three letter acronyms that we're talking about. But it is very interesting before RBC was implemented. And you have to be careful about this cause and effect and interpret over-interpreting it. Since RBC has been implemented, at least on the life side, we have not had any major spate of insolvencies. Yes, a few insurers have gone insolvent. A few insolvencies, or I should say regulator actions, have nothing to do with real insolvencies and more on fraudulent action on the part of management. That's a different issue entirely. Um And I'm not going to talk about those because I write about them for my job. It's hard to say, you know, cause and effect. And, you know, you're always worried about the next systemic risk around the corner. That said, since RBC was implemented, and that was fully implemented by 2000, but it really started in the mid-1990s and fully in place, you know, by the, the end of the 90s, it it went through the financial crisis and no life insurer went insolvent because of that financial crisis, even though there were aspects of the RBC formula that gave insurers, and it wasn't just the RBC formula, you got to say, it's also uh, credit rating agencies, their own formulas for what's required in the asset portfolio that gave insurers a little impetus in getting involved in structured securities in their asset portfolios. Uh, the regulatory capital required for the AAA tranche of a CDO, um, you know, CDS, CDO, etc., cetera, was uh, pretty low and you're getting good yield on it. So the return on required capital was very good. And a lot of life insurers were exposed to that. That said, it was, you know, they took a hit on their yield and, you know, they were able to weather it through the pandemic. Insurers have been squeezed with regards to in interest rates and with regards to death benefits, but they've been able to weather that as well because they had had a very large cushion of capital before the pandemic hit. Um, and there are reasons that that had, you know, built up. Again, I'm not going to go too much into recent events. That is my day job. So the RBC, uh, system has worked out very well in the United States so far, but you don't want to overinterpret it. You know, it's less than 30 years it just may be luck who knows <laughs> and it does get adjusted and there are other moving parts i mentioned cash flow testing that's not rbc there are other parts of the regulations like the actuarial opinion um that is separate from simple rbc and reserves that we have to look at aspects such as duration and other things that are more than just the numbers you see in the balance sheet so um you know those are things it's multi-dimensional in how one does risk management with an insurance company and you're supposed to be doing that in banking too is my understanding and my understanding is that certain dimensions were not considered or not optimized perhaps or just not constrained Uh, with regards to Silicon Valley Bank and perhaps some of these other banks. I don't know. I am not a banking expert. Uh, The solvency two metric, I don't like the VAR metric. There are certain aspects about VAR that is risk blind past and it can be gamed versus the way the RBC is calculated. I consider it a much more stable metric. Um it doesn't have cutoffs in the same way. But that's my personal opinion, and I believe SCR has been adjusted over the years. It's relatively new compared to RBC. And other things are going on with the EU anyway, as well we know in terms of uh you know politicking. Um, one of the aspects that I was addressing in my article and this is totally political is how the united states system would be treated with regards to solvency too because the question is uh would european insurers have to hold extra capital uh versus you know what american insurers have to hold it's very complicated. Um, and we get this uh, insurance, especially life insurance is an international business. Reinsurance is definitely an international business and it makes it very difficult to compete. If say you have one insurer has to hold a lot more capital than another insurer. Um, this makes it very difficult and the U.S. regulators were not going to budge. Uh, and there was definitely no way the U.S. was going to be moving, not under this timeline, to a federal basis of regulation. So this was kind of amusing that the EU thought they could <laughs> move the U.S., especially on the timeline they were looking at. I'm like, this, this is highly amusing. Um, given the, the power struggles involved. No, the U.S. hasn't changed. Yet, its basis of regulation, it may in the future, we shall see. Uh, and who knows what will happen this year. There's a lot of financial stresses going on right now. And there are macro stresses that are coming just from demographic change. That's why I know I keep bringing this back, but it's hard to get away from. Um People, you know, we talk about numbers all the time. I talk about numbers all the time. But what drives all these numbers are humans. You know, the AI is not going out there and buying stuff. The AI doesn't need damn thing. Uh, people need food. People need this, that, and the other. They're the ones who are buying and selling. Uh, even if you have your algorithms out there, the algorithms are buying and selling for the benefit of humans. So that's really what's driving this ultimately. Um, so anyway, that's my big thought at the end of this podcast on insurance regulation and how insurers can fail. But we haven't really had one in the U.S., for a long time I haven't talked about where it happened elsewhere yes there have been insurer failures outside of the United States that were big but I can talk about that a different time see y'all